Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. When the Magic Kingdom was nearing its opening date, there was one small problem. Tomorrowland wasn't quite ready. On October 1st, 1971, only two things were ready to go, the Skyway to Fantasyland and the Grand Prix, with both being more or less copies of the Disneyland counterparts. And the funny thing about the Skyway is that it was actually taking people out of Tomorrowland and moving them to Fantasyland. So kind of an interesting little twist there that it wasn't really an attraction to stay in Tomorrowland. The problem here was essentially the same as what was happening at Disneyland. Tomorrowland was a great concept, but without Walt's guidance and vision, it's hard to make it reflect the current view of tomorrow. Back at Disney World, there were two attractions that opened a few months later. Also clones of Disneyland, the Flight to the Moon, and the 360-degree movie America the Beautiful. So while the Magic Kingdom was new and shiny, Tomorrowland was severely lacking in entertainment. It's hard to fathom that one of the lands really didn't offer much to guests. And that's where this story starts. The plan for Tomorrowland included a show of some sort in the building that shares the wall with the 360-degree film. Early on, the seemingly obvious idea was to make that show an attraction similar to Adventures Through Inner Space, like they created at Disneyland. But back to my earlier note about Tomorrowland needing a refresh, it didn't make sense to put a ride like Inner Space in Disney World. It was not as forward-thinking in 1971 as the company would have liked. And there was another interesting limitation based on the initial design, namely that the supports and platforms for the People Mover had already been built, and they had put windows on the top so that riders on the People Mover could, could look into the space, much like they did at Disneyland with that Inner Space attraction. So Disney had to move on to Plan B. The company was always happy to have a sponsor for an attraction. It certainly makes it more affordable and to partner with a, someone to create something unique that would serve as a sort of an advertisement for the company. Disney courted several companies, but they realized that there was an obvious answer. Eastern Airlines had been around for about 50 or so years. They'd grown into prominence when World War I hero Eddie Rickenbacker had acquired and run the airline. Though he left the company in 1963, Rickenbacker lived in South Florida, and clearly he saw the opportunity that lay ahead. At one point he said, Someday Florida is going to be the greatest winter air travel market in the country. Who the hell wants to spend 30 hours getting here on a train when they can fly from New York to Miami in a third of the time? He was right. By the late 1960s, they had recently acquired more routes, and business was booming. But growth for the airline was a challenge. Eastern had recently ordered some new L-1011 aircraft from Lockheed, but the delivery was delayed for technical reasons, and Eastern had to lease planes from other airlines and had some publicity issues because they couldn't service all of their routes. Time healed that, of course, but they still needed some positive publicity to grow their brand and become the East Coast's go-to airline. Disney, meanwhile, decided that the one thing they should do was name an official airline of Walt Disney World. 
They already had a Disneyland partner in United Airlines, but United didn't have the capital to extend their reach to the new Disney World, and never mind the fact that they would not be able to fund a new attraction. That and the fact that a new airline partner for the East Coast would ensure that guests could make their way to the resort. Eastern being the big player in Florida and bringing much of the East Coast traffic was a natural fit for Disney World. your family to a place where dreams are born. Walt Disney World on Eastern, the airline with more flights from more cities to Walt Disney World than any other airline. A dream is a wish your heart makes love. There's only one official airline at Walt Disney World, and that's Eastern, the airline that's working harder for your dollar. The wings of man. And by the way, when they first conceived of Disney World, Disney had planned to use an on-site runway to welcome guests from further away. But perhaps they didn't think too far into the future, or perhaps they were planning for only a limited number of arrivals. What they actually built is what's known as a short takeoff and landing site, meaning it couldn't accommodate large aircraft like typical commercial jets. So the early plans called for allowing small planes to land there and to bring people in from Orlando Airport via some small planes. But practicality won out, and buses and other ground transportation were used to ferry guests to the world. The next part was to hammer out some details to make Eastern a sponsor for the attraction. Eastern agreed to put up about $10 million for the relationship agreement, and to include a new ride in the empty 30,000-square-foot space that existed in Tomorrowland, right next to the 360-degree theater. Now, as you may recall, Disney used the ticket system for rides and shows. If you buy an A ticket for a dime, you can ride the Main Street trolley. Buy an E ticket for 50 cents and ride the Haunted Mansion. The Eastern attraction wouldn't need a ticket at all. It would be like a giant advertisement for Eastern Airlines, but it would still be a themed ride, have a catchy tune, and would still be a lot of fun. Eastern wanted the ride to show off the wonders of travel. They had recently acquired a number of routes in the Caribbean and Central America, moderately exotic yet close-to-home locations that were easily accessible via Eastern Airlines. Their company tagline was, We earn our wings every day. And that was the starting point for web designer slash imagineer Claude Coates. To quote from Widen Your World, What they managed to fit in was a vibrant, kinetic, and multidimensional experience called together from an array of artistic disciplines that Disney has been employing for years. Flat set pieces, sculptures, props, and film projections combined in the same physical space to depict various travel destinations serviced by Eastern, primarily Mexico, the Caribbean, and New Orleans. It also doubled as a type of simulator through the first use of a Disney-designed effect called the Speed Room, a.k.a. the Super Speed Tunnel, when pieced together with lighting and sound effects, music, and versatility of the Omnimover system, the varied elements made for a compelling and memorable five-minute experience. The music itself was arranged by Buddy Baker, while Exitensio wrote the lyrics. Now those two also combined to work on the Pirates of the Caribbean. So again, you have a very memorable score that's being created here. The attraction pulls its name from Eastern slogan and was known as If You Had Wings, with the song following the same theme.
Now, I have to say, it was remarkable and totally memorable. And because it was free, it offered a wonderful respite from the Florida sun. So let's take a look at the ride. Inside the doors was what looked like a futuristic airport terminal. You walked through a queue, there was bright colors and fabrics. There were signboards that you would pass for various destinations. The audio would call out some of these destinations. And it did feel kind of like an airport in a way. So kind of an interesting idea. Now, the ride itself is an Omnimover. Now, along the way, I have never taken the time to explain this type of a ride system, and I'd like to correct that now. The Omnimover was created as a result of a need in the 1963 World's Fair. It wasn't specifically used for the World's Fair, but some of the things that they did do led to the design of the Omnimover. The design was conceived by Roger Brogy and Burt Brundage, and documented in 1968, and has U.S. patent number 3554130 assigned to it. It's a series of two to three person moving bench chairs with a high back. To visualize what it looks like, think of the Haunted Mansion's Doom Buggies. They're another classic example of the Omnimover. The chairs all have wheels and run on a track. There are a series of these chairs connected together using a chain, and they're pulled along the track by motors at various intervals along the track. There's a third rail, or electrified rail, running along the track, and this allows for power in each car, mostly so the audio can be played in the car itself. There are sensor points that play specific audio, so if the ride stops, it doesn't get out of sync with the ride itself. Now that part's all fine and clever, but the ingenious part of the design is how the chairs are mounted on a central pivot or swivel. This allows the designers to adjust your angle, so your point of view is exactly what the set designers want you to see. The idea is to make you feel immersed. They can show you something, then quickly turn you to see something else. It's immersive, and yet it's very movie-oriented, harkening back to Walt Disney's early days in designing sets for movies. The storytelling is partly based on what they direct you to see. Now, as I said, the Omnimover was created in the 1960s, so the method for swiveling the chairs is very low-tech. Basically, there's a metal bar under the seat. When they want to change your view, the track turns, and there's a post on the bottom of the track. The bar hits this post, and it causes the chair to turn. You may have noticed that there are places where the Omnimover makes several small turns. For example, in the Haunted Mansion, there's a sequence heading into and around Madame Leota. The car turns a bit, then turns a bit more, then turns more. That's because the car has to hit each post to turn a bit. It's so smart, and yet so simple. Disney has used it, with a few minor variations on it over the years, in many of their attractions. They do have some other types of ride vehicles, but these have proven to be exceptionally reliable over the years. You think about how much downtime some of these attractions have, and it's very small. Now, by the way, the speed ramp, next to the load area, is a very clever invention as well. A moving belt that travels at the same speed as the chair makes it pretty straightforward to load and unload. They tell you that you're going to be stepping off onto a moving ramp, but it's moving at the same speed, so all you have to do is just stand there and you're next to the car and you can get in. How very, very clever. Now, in the If You Had Wings attraction, there were 102 of these seats connected up. You'd go through the gate and start on your adventure. If You Had Wings ran in the same direction that Buzz Lightyear does today, heading off to your right as you enter the building. You'd enter a giant globe and be off on a trip to exotic locales. In the first scene, projections of animated silhouettes of seagulls and airplanes that seemed to merge together would sweep past you on the walls, suggesting flight. You would then pass through a series of colorful theater-like sets with embedded small screens 
looping rear-projected short film scenes which showcased various eastern destinations and appealed to potential tourists with straw hat markets, fishermen, limbo dancers, steel drum bands, and a whole lot more. Most of the scenes had their own special sound effects, which added and augmented the visual. Of course, the Omnimover would swivel to direct your field of view to each of these scenes. Now, amazingly, 38 16mm projectors were used to in the attraction. On the downside, you could hear them humming as the film loops ran. But the music also played, and its catchy tunes stuck with you and kind of overrode that humming sound. The locales you saw were Mexico, Bermuda, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, where a tropically attired traffic cop blew a whistle to direct a flock of flamingos in one direction, pedestrians and vehicles in the other, Jamaica, where the ride's only 35mm projector showed a pod of bathing suit-clad young people clambering up the rocks at Duns River Falls, Trinidad, and New Orleans, where shadows of blowing jasmine flickered on the wall. All of these were destinations that Eastern Airlines offered. In order, you would see an Aztec Pyramid, the Cliff Divers, the Stone Dragon, Modern Mexico, the Dancers and Band, a Cruise Ship, Straw Market, the Limbo, the Treasure Hunt, the Caribbean, San Juan, Bahamas, and Margaritas. Then you would move into the Speed Tunnel and the Mirror Room, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Now, next up after you finished your adventure looking around was that you went into something called the Speed Room, a ridiculously simple effect that was oh so fun. It was basically a curved tunnel that extended about 100 feet as your car moved along. Along the curved interior, the designers projected snippets of, of first-person movies of an airplane taking off, water skis, motorcycles, airboats, racing in a dune buggy across the desert, water skiing on a busy lake, and flying down a forest path in the engine of a speeding train. Now, personally, I always hoped that I would get to be on the plane taking off, and sometimes when I didn't get that, I'd line up and ride again, just hoping to get it. The clips were projected on the walls by a 70mm projector, with a special lens that allowed the images to be displayed with minimal distortion. Now, this is the 1960s and early 1970s, so there was some distortion. It wasn't perfect, but it was a pretty good effect. And to the passengers, because of the oval shape, the screen encompassed your entire peripheral vision, so it seemed like a cool effect. You were very immersed in the moment. Your ride vehicle reclined in the speed room, and a breeze was blown onto you by some fans off to the sides. The wraparound images in combination with the motion and reclining angle of the vehicle and a blast of air, arguably, constituted an early attempt at virtual reality. The speed room was followed by the mirror room, which was box-shaped and covered with mirrors. Here there were 70mm projections of snow-capped mountains and other places like that that were reflected in the mirrors. The idea was to make you feel like you were flying, so the scenes were shot from an ascending angle, again with fans to add to the illusion. After that, riders descended by putting the chairs back into an upright position, and a voice told us, you do have wings. You can do all these things. You can widen your world, Eastern, the wings of man. Interestingly, the voice for the first few years was Orson Welles. Yes, that Orson Welles who did War of the Worlds. Orson Welles was also the spokesman for Eastern Airlines in their advertising campaign at the time. Later, he was replaced by Pete Renaday. In this version, it ended with a slightly different slogan, Eastern. We'll be your wings. And then again, the, you would see the seagulls and airplanes merging together, and you would reach the end of the ride. And here you would disembark, not into a gift shop, but rather into an Eastern Airlines reservation desk. Agents stood ready to assist you with travel arrangements. Now let's take a listen to the actual ride audio. Here's a vintage ride recording that I think kind of sums it up. You can hear all the noisiness and all the other things that are going on. 
Hear all that ride noise? Now let's try it again with the demo recording that gives you a better feel for what they were saying, even though the dialogue changed slightly from what they actually provided in the ride. Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 72, your Fiesta flight to Mexico and the ancient pyramids, now departing at gate 19. Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, your holiday cruise to the emerald beauty of a Puerto Rican rainforest, now ready for departure. Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 25, your vacation flight to cool Caribbean lagoons, now ready for boarding. Thank you. 
you could flitter and flutter to the Isle of Springs, to that emerald green garden, and do wonderful things. If you had wings, if you had wings, if you had wings, had wings, had wings, had wings, you could fly with flamingos to that old French town. Go and regal New Orleans. Where's a carnival crown? If you had wings, if you had wings, if you had wings, had wings, had wings, had wings, had wings. You do have wings, you can do all these things, you can widen the world, for you have wings, for you have wings, have wings, have wings, for you have wings, have wings, have wings, have wings, have wings. Now the People Mover opened a couple of years later, and because of the layout of the ride, you got a view into the attraction that was clever. You saw parts of scenes, and it made you want to check it out. Now, even though the People Mover was originally designed to look into inner space, Claude Coates did a masterful job of looking at where the windows were to make sure that your view from the People Mover wasn't of the back of some projector and didn't really make sense. He tried to make sure that you could actually see something that was meaningful and might actually encourage you to want to go on the ride. The ride itself opened to the public on June 5, 1972. Eastern Airlines and Walt Disney Productions formally unveiled the attraction during a dedication ceremony with the following month on July 2nd. And that brought the total number of attractions in Tomorrowland to five within six months of park opening. And there you have it, a classic attraction that had a unique place in the Magic Kingdom's history. It was a giant billboard for Eastern Airlines, but yet it was so much more than that. 
On a future podcast, I'll have to tell you what came next leading up to Buzz Lightyear that exists there now. But before I go, I want to tell you one personal story. When I was a cast member in the early 1990s, I was sent one afternoon up to the storage space of Bob Mickey Star Traders. The request was to get some shelving for a display we were creating. Now, what I remember is the person who had the key to the room let me in and turned me loose, but had no idea where the shelves were going to be found. There was a myriad of stuff in the room, and it didn't appear to be in any particular order. I started hunting for what I needed, but stumbled on some cool artifacts that I wish I'd spent a little more time looking over. In retrospect, I spent too little time. I should have picked, a, picked through it a little more and spent a little more time studying it, or perhaps managed to get back in there another time. But I have to tell you, I'm glad that I managed to get in there. It was really, really cool. I don't remember everything that was there, but I did see an Eastern Airlines logo, a poster for If You Have Wings, and at least part of a prop that I remembered was part of the attraction. It was cool and special and a private moment that I think about from time to time because I enjoyed the ride and always had wings. It's one of those things that stands out as a highlight for me. And even when I'm riding the People Mover today and we pass by Mickey Star Traders, I think about that storage space. I wonder if things have changed dramatically in there or if it's still got a bunch of artifacts from times past. Well, anyway, thank you for taking a listen and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 